So almost every Sunday, we ask you to open your Bibles, and I want to invite you to do that now. If you brought a Bible, it's about two-thirds of the way back to Daniel chapter 4. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we say this every week as well, that if you uh, want to, there should be a Bible nearby you in the seat rack. It should say NIV on a black Bible. And you can turn to page 616 if you want to look at that. You may even beat your neighbor if you turn that fast in the black Bible. So we're going to look at this today, Daniel 4. If you haven't been with us, we're studying Daniel this summer, all 12 chapters, a chapter each week. We've called this series, No Matter What. And uh, the big idea, here's the sentence uh, for the series here up on the screen. Let's read it together. No matter what, God is in control. That's really the big theme of Daniel. Well, as you're turning there, let me just uh, talk to you about one of my favorite stories. Uh, I love telling this. And when I was a kid, I, uh, uh, the, one of the famous boxers at that time was Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali um, often said wherever he'd go, I am the that's right, some of you still remember. And so yeah, he was a great boxer and he knew it. So one time he was on a commercial airline and uh, as he was uh, getting ready to take off with the rest of the people, uh, the flight attendant came by and said, uh, uh, Mr. Ali, would you please uh, fasten your seatbelt? Uh, at which point he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> to which she replied without missing a beat, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> and I thought about that story, and I thought, you know what? When you become great, it's easy to forget some things. It's easy to start walking around saying, I don't need a seatbelt. And so this passage today shows how God can help us not forget how we can remember some really important things as we go through life. So if you're following along in the notes, here's what I, I want to share with you today. Here's a big picture of what this chapter and what happens in this chapter. Daniel sees God teach a pagan king a life-changing practice. Daniel sees God teach an unlikely king a life-changing practice. Maybe you remember from review that Daniel is living in Babylon. He's not living at home. This king... Nebuchadnezzar has conquered Israel and Judah and, and carried away stuff uh, from the temple and then turned a number of kids uh, like Daniel into subjects uh, in his royal court. And so he is a minority. He's no longer surrounded by people that believe the same thing he does, and including this king who's conquered his, his, his country. But he gets a chance to see, to show you how much God is in control, to show you how great he is, he gets a chance to see God teach even an unbeliever in him how to become not only a believer in him, but to learn this life-changing practice. So uh, I want to just pray, and then we're going to look at this. And uh, I want you to know that I'm going to actually read only part of the scripture today because some of it repeats itself. But you can always, like Craig taught us last week, you can always read this full chapter or listen to it at home as well. So let's pray. Now, God, here we are on this summer morning, and we just want to ask you to meet us here, that you teach us your ways, that we might know you better, that we could walk with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, the big idea, what happens, the way that uh, God teaches this king, Nebuchadnezzar, a life-changing practice, is he uses a dream. 
you're following along in the message notes there, you'll see the outline pretty much is, is that Nebuchadnezzar has a, tree, a dream of a great tree. And uh, this dream of a great tree um, is, is something that we're going to talk about, and we're going to see how he dreams it, then the fulfillment of it, and what happens as a result of that. And then we're also going to talk about this life-changing practice. So first of all, these first couple lines, let me just give some background. First, I want you to see, verse 4 tells us that this dream comes when he's living in comfort and prosperity. This dream of a great tree comes when he's living in comfort and prosperity. Some of your Bible translations say uh, contented, at ease. He's pretty much in the golden years of his reign. If you look at verse 4, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. The New Living Translation says, in comfort and prosperity. And the reason I bring this up is because sometimes when things are going really well for us, when we're in like a golden time, that's when it's easy to forget some things. That's when it's easy to forget God. It's easy to forget a lot of important things in our life. And uh, so uh, notice that, but also notice that when this dream comes, even though that's his situation, it makes his knees knock. He actually says, this dream made me afraid. I was terrified. And it doesn't just make him afraid. Later, when he asked Daniel to interpret the dream, it makes Daniel afraid. Now, I bring this up because I don't know if you ever struggle with this, but uh, even last Sunday, I was conscious of this as we were singing, you know, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, we want to see you. And I, I think in my heart I really mean that, but there's other times I, I'm starting to realize I don't necessarily know what I'm asking. See, sometimes if God decides to show us whatever he wants to show us, it may make our knees knock. He is so great, he can see things we can't see, he may see things that we don't want to know, that actually it may make us more afraid, and so we just have to always live with a sense that he is so great that he can say something to us that may shake our world up a little bit like it did Nebuchadnezzar's, okay? Second thing I want you to see is that the dream, if you were to summarize what the big idea of the dream is, it's all about a once great tree that's cut down and reduced to a stump. A once great tree is cut down and reduced to a stump. That's what we're going to see in these verses, and that's as he was sleeping, you know, in ease and prosperity and all that. He has these dreams that pass through his mind, and now he calls all of his counselors together and says, I need an interpretation, because this one's bugging me, and I need to know what it means. I need to know how to understand it. And when he brings on all his wise men, these wise men, none of them from his own country are able to interpret it for him. So he calls in Daniel And he says, Daniel, I know that the spirit of the holy gods, notice he's a polytheist instead of just uh, believes in one God. He says, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Please interpret this for me. Because remember chapter two, Daniel was given the power to interpret that dream too. So when that happens, we see that this very disturbing dream of a great tree is cut down and reduced to a stump. Now, I want to stop here and say this. Sometimes because we live in in a day and age that tells us that we live in the most important time in history, or because we get a chance to see some really powerful and great things, we sometimes think we know more about greatness than other generations before us. But I want to tell you that probably uh, there's only a dozen people that ever knew as much power as Nebuchadnezzar did. He literally was able to rule almost the entire world and was in the process of trying to take that over too. 
And so he experienced some things that most of us never get to experience in terms of unbelievable power and authority. Uh, and when that happened, I mean, let me just give you an example. He actually was a builder. He designed what's uh, one of the seven wonders of the world called the Hanging Gardens in Babylon. This is an incredible thing to behold. And not only that, but the walls around the capital city <clears throat> were so high and so thick and so phenomenal. And you think about this building process that, they, that historians say that a four-horse chariot could literally turn in a circle on top of the walls. How thick is that? And uh, so there were, I could go on and on, but you get the picture. This guy is powerful. And the next chapter is going to tell us that, you know, if he decided someone died, they died. If he decided someone lived, they lived. I mean, this incredible power, okay? So I tell you all this because it came at the height, and it's about a great tree that's cut down. It's got his full attention. Now he calls in Daniel. Let's pick it up in verse 19, okay? And I'll ask you to read part of verse 25 in that first gray box when we get to it. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, which is the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave him when he came to Babylon and uh, Nebuchadnezzar changed Daniel's name, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Now this is interesting. It had alarmed Nebuchadnezzar, but now he says to Daniel, uh, and I think it's just out of nervousness, oh no, you look upset. Let's, let's, not, let's not be upset about this. Please tell me it's, it's not a bad dream. And then, uh, you know, Daniel is, is bothered, so he can't talk at first. And, uh, but I want you to, here's what I want you to notice. This guy that Daniel's going to be talking to is, for all practical purposes, the enemy of his nation. This guy took his nation down. He took him away from his family. He destroyed the city he lived in. He took all of the articles out of the temple of God back to his country to go, in your eye, kind of thing. And now Daniel gets a chance to talk to him. And I, what I want you to see is that instead of going, ha, 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 God's going to get you. Look what he says. My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Do you hear how he wanted things to go well for this guy? He wanted the well-being of this guy. Verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth. Now, is that, is that a big tree? I've been to Muir Woods where you have those 250, 300-foot redwood trees, and it takes my breath away. But now picture a tree that's so big that everybody on earth can see it. That's a big tree. It says, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of 
of heaven. Now, would you read this next part of verse 25 with me from the notes? Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Verse 26, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Now notice he, he's standing in front of the most important person in the world at that time, and notice the courage that Daniel has and the spirit in which he says this next part. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. If you're following along in the notes, notice what Daniel interprets. Your majesty, you are that tree. That's an interesting thought right there. In other words, that great tree you picture in your dream, it's talking about you. Have you ever, you ever studied what the Bible says about trees? It often likens trees to people. And in fact, the passage I thought of first was Psalm 1. Maybe you've seen this before. Let's on the screen. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff. You ever seen chaff? When I was a pastor out in Iowa, the farmers, after they'd go through the wheat or the beans and stuff, sometimes the chaff that was the outer shell that just has no weight to it, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to what, friends? Destruction. In other words, so, so he's saying, hey, you're that tree. And the way that you, you respond is, is a lot has to do with what kind of tree you are. So notice the next thing he says, you will live, part of the interpretation, you will live with wild animals, and eat grass until, if you're following along. You will live with the wild animals and eat grass until. Notice you read that earlier, verse 25 in that gray box. Seven times will pass by for you until. And we'll come back to that because it talks to us about this life-changing practice. So notice that. Now this is where some of you may say, this is where I got to get off the bus. This is where the story is starting to get weird. Like, I don't think that ever really happened. I don't think he actually uh, was driven away from people and ate grass. And come on, that, does that even really happen? You probably know this, but there are some rare examples of what's sometimes called lycanthropy or boanthropy, where uh, a person literally starts to have a desire to be like an animal or act like an animal. They may eat dirt, they may eat grass, things like that. And what happens is, is in those cases, it's usually a form of some kind of, of insanity where they lose their mind and they begin to lose touch with who they really are and what it actually is going on. And uh, so, again, that, that actually can be documented medically that there have been some rare cases like that. But let me just give you one example from our own history in the United States. 
Have you ever heard of Howard Hughes? Howard Hughes was a billionaire. He's one of the richest people of his time in the whole world, let alone the United States. And he had known a lot of success and a lot of favor in his life. But the way his life ended was really sad. The way his life ended was not only was he, did he become a total drug addict, but he, he became literally insane and total recluse and fearful and full of anxiety. And his hair grew super long. Uh, and he, many of his friends said he started to have animal-like actions and his fingernails would grow so long they were like corkscrews and it was, it was just so far from the handsome, sharp guy that he had been. And it's just an interesting thing to think about how someone can be like that and then all of a sudden that all is taken away. So this actually happened to Nebuchadnezzar. If, if you've not seen the next verse, let me read it, verses 28 through 33. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, again, think about this. Think about as he looked out what he saw. Wow. We're talking buildings, walls, hanging gardens. Unbelievable. He said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. You notice all the personal pronouns in there? I did it. My, my. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Some people say, what does it mean seven times? Some scholar says it means seven years. It could mean seven seasons. We're not exactly sure. We do know that if your fingernails grow that long, it takes a while. But it was long enough, and it was a period of total, like, unforgettable time in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And so if you're following along, ignoring Daniel's advice, this dream comes true 12 months later. Notice in verse 27 when he says, you know, if you'd, be, if you'd be willing to listen to my advice based on, here's, I interpreted the dream for you, here's what I think would be a good idea. Renounce your sins. Stop being wicked and being, start being kind to those you're oppressing. Change, change the way you're living right now. Now, I, I bring all this up because sometimes people think that God is a God that, you know, is already decided everything, therefore it doesn't matter what you do. But the Bible does not indicate that as clearly as you may think. The Bible teaches that God's sovereignty and human responsibility go hand in hand. That the reason why he would send his prophets was to warn people not because he wanted to destroy them, but because he wanted to give them time. He wanted to say, look, by the way you respond from your heart, you actually can have a part in the way the trajectory of your life goes. So it says, 12 months later, and someone asked me this week, they said, why did God wait 12 months? And I, you know, and I said, that's a great question. Why do you think God waited 12 months? 
I think it's because he's a merciful God. But you know, God could have given him 12 minutes. But nevertheless, you can see here that Nebuchadnezzar was unfazed by what Daniel had told him. He didn't take his advice as far as we can tell. He basically said, you know what? Thank you very much. I'm Superman. I don't need a seatbelt. Go talk to someone else. Have you ever done that? I can look back on my life and I've seen different times where God made something so clear to me through a Daniel or someone else and I blew it off. And man, God was trying to reach out to me and say, I want this for your good. Come on. And he was doing that with Nebuchadnezzar. Do you see how God is reaching out to Nebuchadnezzar? He's an unbeliever. He doesn't even believe in him, but God cares about him. And Daniel does too. And so what I want you to see is verses 34 through 37. Let me read that. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, and friends, this is a really incredible thing you and I can do, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion, his dominion, is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. That's amazing. And I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise God and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. If you're following along the notes here, what I want you to see is that humbled, he looks heavenward, is restored and praises God. In that time of isolation, in that time of humiliation, in that time, He does something that every human being can do. Look heavenward and acknowledge God. And when he does, God graciously, mercifully, just as he had interpreted through Daniel, does that. And he's restored. And God has this restoring heart. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar, no one holding a gun to his head now, no one saying, you gotta like, he wanted to. He wanted to say, look, God's ways of cutting me down to size were right. His ways were just. And he knows how to humble a proud person, and I'm glad he does. Can you feel the joy? If you read the first three verses of this chapter, you'll see him praising God for that too. He says, I want to tell you about what God did for me. He took me from being this guy. Yes, I was important in the world, but I I was so messed up in my head as far as how to interpret that. I'd forgotten some things. I started acting like I didn't need a seatbelt. I started acting like, you know, I was bigger. And man, he taught me this stuff. Bless his name. Praises him. You know, a couple things come to my mind when I think about this. Years ago, Louis XIV, the king of France, uh, who, you know, had a season of greatness in his life. When he died, he had made arrangements that at his funeral... Notre Dame, the incredible Notre Dame, would be darkened so that the only light in Notre Dame would be a candle on top of his casket. The person officiating at his funeral decided to go off plan and started the funeral this way. 
He walked over to the casket, blew out the candle, and then said these words, only God is great. Only God is great. You think you'd ever forget that funeral? Wow. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was an incredible author who, when Soviet Russia decided to have a revolt, the revolution of communism many years ago, he was part of it. He's passed away now. But as a young man, he saw that as being a very exciting thing. So he was part of the revolution. And at first, he was all for communism, but then he began to see some of the barbarism and some of the underbelly of that, and he began to expose it in his books. And the communists were not happy. So he was arrested, and he was sent to Siberia and other places, work camps where he was mistreated. And amazingly, he found asylum in the United States late in his life. And when he came to the United States, everybody had read his books. They knew this was a very wise man. So they said, tell us, you know, what have you learned? And he said, well, when I was a young man in Russia, he said that all the older people around us who remembered the greatness of Russia and now saw it deteriorating said to us, this is happening because we have forgotten God. So they said, uh, when he came to the United States, he spoke at Harvard, commencement, all these different places. And they said, tell us what you think of the United States. He said, well, I notice a loss of courage and a loss of character in this nation, as great as it is. And he said, the only thing I could possibly say about the United States is what the older people said to me when I was young. This is happening because we have forgotten God. Friends, when things go well, when people become great, when we're in the golden years, sometimes it's easy to forget what really matters. And Nebuchadnezzar had, but God taught him that there was a better way than forgetting. And I want to talk to you about that now, because this is the life-changing practice that you and I can learn, just as Nebuchadnezzar did. If you notice in the passage that we've been reading, three times there's this idea, either until or when, if you're following along, you acknowledge God's sovereign rule. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Do you see that in verse 25 in that gray box? And so he says, look, you know, seven times are going to pass by. In other words, you're going to go through a period of time where God's going to give you an opportunity. You may not take it. You may not like it. But this is your opportunity. This is the life-changing practice if you choose it. Acknowledge me. Acknowledge my rulership in your life. Acknowledge that only I am great. Not because I have an ego thing, but because if I am that great, I alone can make the world spin properly. You notice how he ends it? He says, look, everything he does is right. All his ways are just. This isn't some demagogue. This isn't some unjust God who's just into his own deal. We're talking about the only person in the universe that has true character and thank heavenly He's, thank heavens, he's in charge. So notice that, you know, until you acknowledge, he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, this isn't about Daniel acknowledging me. This isn't about someone else. This is about you. When's that going to happen? I want to just stop and ask you, have you ever done this? Have you ever acknowledged God as the king of your life, the ruler of you, the one who alone is worthy to be in charge of your life? Have you ever done that? If you've never done that, friends, I just want to tell you, that will be the question for the rest of your life to deal with. 
And if you have done it, that will be the question of the rest of your life to deal with. It's the most important thing. What you and I do, whether or not we acknowledge the Lord, is the secret to our life or the destruction of it. The second thing here is, what does the word acknowledge mean? And some of you go, man, Jeff, I think I've heard you talk about this before. And so maybe you know that about 21 years ago, God took a Bible verse that I, I had memorized as a little boy, but I did not ever really understand it, let alone practice it. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will. He will direct your paths. And I remember one day, all of a sudden, and, I, and you know, I, I've often wondered, why did God show me that verse? I can tell you the truth. It's because I'm so proud. It's because I forget that only God is great. A lot. A lot. And therefore, in his grace, he showed me that if I would acknowledge him and learn how to do that in all my ways, all the different things that I think may be too small or too big or whatever, I would learn how to do that. And so at first, I remember thinking, I've got to understand what acknowledge means. And I knew that acknowledging didn't just mean paying token respect or just mentally agreeing to something. Because my wife, in our marriage, sometimes I would be looking at her and nodding my head a lot, and she could tell I wasn't there. She you say, You're not, you, don't, you didn't really just hear what I said, did you? This, by the way, still happens. I don't want to act like I've gotten past that. <laughs> but, I, I, but I at least know the, the difference. So anyway, here's, if you're following along, here's what the word acknowledge means. It means heart-engaged interaction and recognition. Heart-engaged interaction and recognition. Have you ever really been acknowledged by someone? You know it. You know it because you can tell. Their heart's with you. They're engaged. They're interacting with you, and they recognize, they, they recognize your value, and you feel it. Now, the thing is, acknowledge pretty much means appropriate, you know, recognition of someone's authority. So to acknowledge the Lord doesn't mean I believe in him. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. doesn't mean, hey, God, it's me again. It's, that's, that's not that. It's a lot bigger than that. It means to submit our lives to him. The way we can know whether or not we've properly recognized his authority is by submitting to it rather than just going, hey, man, you're, you're powerful. No, you're powerful over me. And I, I submit to that. I recognize that. So to acknowledge, and that's why God could say to his people, there is no acknowledgement of God in the land, even though temple attendance was an all-time high. Jesus said this, look in Mark 7, 6, look what he says. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but what, friends? Their hearts are far from me, their worship is a farce. No, you're not engaged. You're just going through motions. You're going through habits. But somewhere along the line, your heart stopped being engaged. When your heart acknowledging the Lord is because you're engaged with him. Jesus said, I do nothing apart from what my father wants me to do. We do things engaged together in heart. Therefore, he wanted to teach us that same thing. Notice this, then. I want to just show you several things. Let's just say that you decide today to walk out of here and say, you know, that was a good message, but I don't think I'm ready to or interested in acknowledging the Lord. Good for Nebuchadnezzar. I'll wait till I'm older or I'll wait till I feel more like it. I just want to tell you that is your choice and I respect that, but here's what I want to say. Play it all the way out. Watch to see what happens to your life if you decide not to acknowledge the Lord. I plead with you because that will go a different direction than if you do. That is what God's trying to say to Nebuchadnezzar and to us. And so, first, what happens when I don't acknowledge him? Let's just think about that. 
First, when I don't acknowledge him, what I've, just, I've learned about myself is I become deluded. It leads me to be deluded, D-E-L-U-D-E-D. In other words, I, I start losing, I lose touch with the reality. I start actually thinking I'm more important than I am. I start actually seeing things in a skewed way. I start losing a measure of my sanity. I start becoming less than God made me to be. The second thing is, is I become disconnected. When you and I, again, are, we don't acknowledge him, it, it doesn't matter how successful we are on the outside, something gets disconnected on the inside of our relationship with God. And the third thing there when I don't is that I become more boastful. Boastful. I begin to think that the reason why things are going so well is because I work hard, or I'm talented, or I do better than someone else. And I don't know about you, but that, I, I've seen people that work much harder than me and don't necessarily experience the same things, or people that work way less harder than me and actually experience more. That's certainly not a good explanation for life. But you notice Nebuchadnezzar, look what I built with my hands for my glory. See, that just happens because he wasn't acknowledging him, see? And then it leads to, as someone told us, chaff. Some of you, I want to make sure you know this. Sometimes people say, well, if I don't acknowledge God, then he's going to be mad at me and that's, I'm going to become a bad person. No, friends, I know people that don't acknowledge God. They're not necessarily terrible people, but they're smaller than they could be if they did. Sometimes it's not about badness as much as it is smallness. And when you and I, the reason why God's saying that is you will literally make yourself less human if you don't acknowledge me. Come on, please. He's appealing to us. But what if I do? And what has helped me acknowledge God? What things have helped me? I'll just give you three verses and then I want to unpack it real quick. First verse is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Look at this verse. I try and remind myself of this verse fairly often. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not What's the word? Receive. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? In other words, everything I have is a gift. I am not the source of any good thing in my life. It's not a result of hard work. It's not a result of talent. I didn't get to pick where I was born. I didn't get to pick my parents. I did not get to do any of those. What do I have that I did not receive? Why do you boast as though you did not? Another verse is James 4. Look at these verses here. This humbles me. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Friends, I need to understand even this life is passing away. It's temporary. I need to walk humbly about that. But I forget that stuff, see, when I'm thinking I'm great. And here's the last one, and it's in that second gray box, and I want to ask you if you'd read it out loud with me together. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Would you read it with me one more time? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I try to remember to, through, I mean from, through, to. I try to remember that a lot, those prepositions. And here's what I've noticed. When I do acknowledge him, 
Then I, and when I remember that things come from him and through him and to him, here's what I've learned. I become more thankful. I realize that God has given me things on loan from his gracious hand. And I can't boast about that. He can give or he can take away, but I realize it's from him. What do I have that I did not receive? You know, we tried to teach our kids this when they were little. We um, would pray before meals, not because I was a pastor, but because we saw the value in that. But we realized that can become a dead habit real easily, and you can just do it perfunctory. So every once in a while, we'd try and mix things up at the dinner table, and I'd say to the kids, especially when they were little, hey, why do we pray before meals? And they'd say, because uh, we're supposed to. I said, let's work a little harder. I, that's a good answer, but it's not the best answer, okay? And uh, I said, where do we get this food? They said, well, Mom bought it at the grocery store. I said, that's right. And uh, where did she get the money to buy it at the grocery store? She said, well, the people at the church give you money, and then uh, she uses some of that to buy food. I said, that's true. Where do the people from church get the money? Oh, well, they work for some people that give them the money when they work. I said, well, where do those people at work get the money? You see what I'm doing here? And we would call it trace it all the way back. If you take, you know, some of these cords up here and trace it all the way back to the power source, what you discover is, for from him are all things. I had a lady when I was a pastor out in Iowa, like a second mother to me, that would come up to me regularly and say, Jeff, don't forget where your power comes from. For from him. Second thing is that I've noticed I become more trusting when I live through him instead of in my own power. That you and I can live life through him instead of independent from him, disconnected from him. And we can actually say, okay, God, show me how to do this. So every once in a while, people say, like, how do I do this acknowledging thing? I'll just tell you how I try and do it. It's not fancy. I get in every situation I get in, I try to mentally go, okay, God, I want to acknowledge you with this. Show me how to do this with you through your power, even though I may have done it a hundred times and think I'm really smart and fancy. Show me how to do this with you because I don't want to miss out on what you could show me. See, when God says acknowledge me, the reason why he does is he says, look, if I get your attention, then I can show you things. I can do things through you that if you won't acknowledge me, I can't do those through you because you are disconnected from me. And I remember years ago reading the story of an elephant and a flea right on his, on his back near his ear. And they went over this big bridge, and as they crossed over the bridge, the flea whispered to the elephant, man, we sure shook that bridge. <laughs> Friends, if I do anything that shakes anything, it's because I am the flea that is privileged to ride on a great elephant. And I get an opportunity every day to go through life with someone who is only, the only one who is great. What a privilege. But I can do it. And when I do, I notice it settles me. It makes me more secure. I find myself trusting in his ability instead of my ability, even though I may feel inadequate. And the next thing is, is praising. I become more praising for from him and through him and to him are all things uh, years ago, I shared this with you, but Albert Pujols, when he played for the Cardinals, I think he's still doing it for the Los Angeles Angels. You know what happens on the playing field? He's a believer. He has this habit. You've probably seen it. What's he doing? He's not just pointing to a loved one. He's pointing to the ultimate loved one, the only one who's great. 
because he remembers that from him and through him and to him, I am going to play baseball. I'm going to do life that way. And you and I can do that way too. And so when God does things in our lives, do you tell other people? Do you give the credit to him? Or do you keep it for yourself? Do you find yourself wanting to sing to him when you're here? Or do you go, I don't do this part. He says, man, give me the praise that's worthy, that's due to me. Worship me. So you and I can acknowledge him that way. So as we think about this, I just want to ask you this closing question. Will I daily acknowledge God's rightful place in my life? Will I daily acknowledge God's rightful place in my life? I can't answer that for you. You know, on the notes before you put them away, in the, just above that second gray box where it says, when I don't or when I do. This week I thought about just changing that to where I do and where I don't. Because sometimes there's certain areas that I don't acknowledge them. I told you when I was dating a non-Christian years ago and God kept really trying to convict me to make sure that I was dating someone be equally yoked, I just kept blowing them off. And so that was an area I didn't acknowledge him. And friends, to the extent I didn't acknowledge him, my life became less. My, my life got smaller. My life became less substantial until I finally acknowledged him. And so, again, God wants to just work in our lives. So let me just stop by talking to you how this came home to me this week. And what I'm about to share with you, I tremble to talk to you because this can be so easily misunderstood and this has become a lightning rod in our nation. But on Friday, Friday was a sad day for me. Friday was a day that I know was a great time of celebration for some people in our nation, but for me it was very confusing. I shared with you last fall that we have to decide whether or not we're going to let the Bible be the plumb line for us individually and as a church. And this whole subject of same-sex marriage is, it's a hot one. And I know some of you, like, you know, I have loved ones, Trish and I have loved ones that are very excited about this subject. And so, again, this isn't an easy subject. You may too. But when the Supreme Court of the United States one of the ruling groups in our land decided five to four that marriage could be redefined by our nation, I found myself just feeling overwhelmingly sad. I remember Jesus' words that said, from the beginning, it's meant to be between a man and a woman. And I thought to myself, man, what's, I don't, yeah, I, in a way I thought, are we forgetting God? Or what's happening? I, I couldn't. And so I tried to get underneath that, and I knew that God was actually more concerned with my own heart response. And so a couple thoughts. One is I found myself having to grapple with what Daniel had to grapple with, is that maybe now I'm part of a nation where no longer what I've believed would be the minority, would be the majority position. Maybe now I, I may have to learn how to live humbly in a minority situation. And if that happens... Am I more interested in being the majority or caring about God? And I noticed in some ways I was more interested in self-interest than I was about God, and that quieted me. I thought, I, I need to be humble. Even if I'm a minority, then I need to learn how to be okay with that if God so ordains it. The second thing was, is that I found myself upset and angry with some of the justices. These are very intelligent people, friends. These are not... These are not straw people I'm talking about. And I found myself very upset. And the Lord showed me that I was more upset because 
They weren't acknowledging God. God, they're not acknowledging. And God says, look, let me take care of them. You acknowledge me. You're not acknowledging me right now. You're just being mad or you're just being sad or just being confused. Have you given, this, given me yourself? And so I found myself finally being able to say, okay, God, I haven't been doing that. You're, you've got my attention. I realized that in some ways the reason why I didn't want to acknowledge him is because I wanted to control things. I wanted to be in control rather than let God be in control, come what may. And so when I was walking the other day, he just said, look, Jeff, I taught Daniel this, I can teach you this. If you'll acknowledge me, I will show you how to look at people differently. I want you to see people through different eyes. I want you to see people you disagree with through different eyes than you're seeing them right now because you're proud, you're haughty, and I want to humble you in that way so that when you do treat people, you treat them graciously like Daniel treated Nebuchadnezzar, even when you have to disagree, even if you have to be courageous and take a stand that they may not want to hear, can you do it in the right spirit? Only if you acknowledge me will you be able to do that. And it was just, uh, it just was one of those things where God was basically saying, look, I am permitting this, but you've got to decide whether or not you will acknowledge me no matter what. Am I going to pray for our nation? Am I going to pray for those that disagree? Absolutely. I want to learn how to do that. I want things to go well with our president. I want things to go well with our Congress. I want things to go well with our Supreme Court, even if we disagree. And I pray that God can help us be that same kind of church, that by acknowledging God humbly, he'll show us how to navigate through these next few years as a nation. So we wanted to close by singing and some of you go, I'm not a singer. Would you be willing to sing to God? Would you be willing to acknowledge him with your voice? Would you be willing to praise him like Nebuchadnezzar did because of his faithfulness to you? Would you do that as an act of faith and saying, I'm not there yet, but I want to trust you. I want to believe that you are sovereign, even though I don't fully understand what that means. I want to worship you for being a sovereign God. So we picked this song, This Is My Father's World, in part, I suggested this song because it says, and though the wrong seems off so strong, he is the ruler yet. Let's praise him. <laughs>